0: This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott.
1: So, this is Paul Verschur for the Convergent Science Network podcast, and we're here at the Barcelona Commission Brain and Technology Summer School of 2018. and um, as one of our speakers today, we have Carney Marcos.
0: Hello.
1: <laughs> and then Carney, um, so you were, you were talking about two things. Like you emphasized very much this whole idea of how prefrontal cortex represents the memory of goals and, and initiates actions, mm-hmm. right? So, um, what what do you see as sort of the key feature of these neurons that needs to be explained?
0: I think the most important result, or the most important thing that we have seen our data, is that the neural network in prefrontal cortex is really heterogeneous. So you cannot explain anything just by looking at the average uh, firing rate of the population because you have nothing there. You have really to go inside the individual dynamics to be able to see something and to really understand what is going on there.
1: Right. So. Um, so what are the key observations that, that you then start out from in this, this exploration?
0: So one of the key results is that we found that there are some neurons or some group of neurons in the prefrontal cortex which really play an important role in shaping the whole dynamics of the network. Mm-hmm. And these neurons are so important because they are very susceptible to the input so that they change the state very easily Mm -hmm. and that uh, uh, consequently they can shape the whole network activity and we can be flexible about what we do or how we interact with the world. While at the same time we have neurons which are much more stable so that they keep track of, uh, of what we did and which is our internal state or
1: all information that could be relevant for what we are doing. Right, but so the, the, first, the first, one of the first experiments that you that you discussed was actually an interesting one where, where, where you looked at how uh, neurons responded to the feedback that the animal received mm-hmm. after it performed the task correctly or incorrectly, mm-hmm. right? And you showed that if you, if you measure from dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, um, neurons came actually in two flavors, right? That, that some showed an elevated response and others actually did not change the response level uh, after the feedback was received. But what I was curious there is that you showed that these neurons increased their response. So I initiate a movement, I get my feedback, I make an error and, and the neurons, there were neurons that actually elevated their response when an error was made. -hmm. Right as opposed to neurons that actually did not change at all, in case uh, the the response was correct. Mm -hmm. Right, so this was a little bit the starting point to show that okay, there is some sort of an internal memory system at work, Mm -hmm. but it elevates the response when I make a mistake. Um, So, what's the significance of that? Mm
0: -hmm. Well, in the task in which uh, we did the analysis, actually we we saw also that. uh, it was not really relevant there, because the monkeys didn't use that information at all in, subsequent, uh, in their subsequent behavior. But we think that this might be very important in dynamic environments or in, in, in situations in which you have to be flexible, actually, to adapt to changes. So you need to know if you did it well or not, because that could have an influence in your subsequent behavior. Mm-hmm. So, we think that the different neurons are, uh, uh, anyway, monitoring this information in case there are some changes or in case this could be relevant for, for something else later on.
1: Okay, but in this case, this elevated response in the firing rate uh, to an error trial it might not be then of immediate relevance in that task because you're not controlling in any way uh, error, mm-hmm. right? But could you still argue that maybe for other uh, mnemonic functions, this error function might play a role in some, some other process that's not directly translated to task performance? Or would you really say irrelevant? Like, this is irrelevant. No, no,
0: I say irrelevant for what we looked at. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's irrelevant uh, for everything. So I think if prefrontal uh, cortex or the brain in general is monitor, uh, monitoring this information or keeping track of that, is because it might be useful um, at some point. For this task in particular, we didn't find any correlation between um, incorrect, correct and the modulation of behaviour. But it could be relevant if in the same task we change some some unexpectedly we change something on the of the task, then the monkey would use this information during learning and adaptation. So it's not irrelevant in general, but it's, yeah, maybe the, the word was not well used. Mm-hmm. It's not irrelevant for everything, but it's not uh, relevant in the way the monkey is using that information in that task, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that uh, it's irrelevant.
1: Right. But, so what was interesting as well is that usually there's an interpretation that that feedback to the animal and error is translated to some sort of modulatory signal to prefrontal cortex, right? Where you would say, well, I got an unexpected reward, dopamine goes up mm-hmm. transiently, and I should see some change in the response. I have an unexpected error, mm-hmm. and I should see a transient down-regulation of dopamine, which should also be translating to a transient response change in, in the neurons. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, you see something very different now. Right, because we see here now, that an error translates into an increased response, which would be associated with, let's say, um, in release of dopamine. But that doesn't make sense given the standard model. The standard model says, no, an unexpected error should be a reduction in dopamine response. right? So, So do you, from that perspective of how we've been thinking about how error regulates prefrontal cortical responses, is this a surprising outcome or you think it's it's really sort of fits in that in the standard interpretation of how this neuron the system should work
0: for us it was at the first step it was surprising we were not expecting that uh, the activity would increase for the root trials but as you said we would expect it to to increase for do- if there is a dopamine release we should expect it to increase with the reward delivery but we found actually the opposite um, we found it, um, we tried to find some kind of correlation actually between the error and the difficulty of the trial. To say, OK, do we have some correlation in the way that maybe for more difficult trials, um, you don't have this activation in the neurons because you, yeah, you were just expected to be wrong, so you just have nothing. But for the most the easiest trials, for, for some reason that we cannot really explain yet, Um, you have this activation because in some point it's like, hey, look, this was wrong, and I was not expecting that. But we don't uh, speculate yet because we cannot answer that in which are the mechanisms causing this. But actually, we didn't find either this correlation with difficulty, so we could not explain that in that way. So, yeah, it was a surprising result, and um, from what we have now, we cannot go more into the details Mm -hmm. uh, of that.
1: But is it fair to say, that it questions the standard model? Or do you, do, do you believe it will be incorporated in the standard model if you just have a bit more time to, 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 to get a look at the details of this?
0: I think it should be incorporated into the standard model. I don't think it's against the standard model. I think it's some feature that should be taken into account.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so, so now we know that, that we, we have responses at different timescales. We have very systematic responses even after the action has been emitted, after we've received our feedback. In this case, then relates to this error, the error component. But then, in some sense, you, you were delving much more in detail in that, and you started to look at, okay, how does the response of these pre- prefrontal cortical neurons, if it's a simple discrimination task, right, I have to say whether something is is closer or further away, or whether uh, the time interval is short or long, what's right? so the a simple discrimination test you started to see that these these, these memory based responses of these neurons were actually not um, univariate. It was not that they were just reflecting one property of the task, right? They could also switch if you want their, their response properties. So, so how, what's really the implication of that? So how dramatic is that? This, this, this switching of the response properties. You mean
0: from coding something in memory to coding something else afterwards? Yeah.
1: yeah. How dramatic! It is. Yeah. So this this was the, the experiment uh, <laughs> that you published in Scientific Reports in 2016, if I'm correct, was it 16? Yes. Mm-hmm. So where you showed these persistent activities in prefrontal cortex are not committed. If you look at the single cell, <laughs> it's not that the single cell has high fidelity to one property of the task. <laughs> Right? It might initially maybe code for what the goal is of the task, but at some point it just switches its allegiance and it starts to code something else. It starts to go into the action you want to transmit. Mm-hmm. Right? So so the, how fundamental is that property, this ability to switch? Do you see that in in many of these neurons or is it something that is sort of very, very uh, rare?
0: No, actually this is quite common in prefrontal mm-hmm. neurons. So they are not just tuned to one of the properties of the task, but normally they code. The normal thing is that they represent more than one uh, feature of the task. So it's quite common to find that in the, in the prefrontal
1: cortex. But they code one feature in sequence. Right? So at one period of time, they code one thing, and period of time, they code the other thing? No. Or are they more multiplexing?
0: No, it, it could be overlapped, too. Mm-hmm. So you could have, the, for instance, in the, in, the, in the result that I presented about the transformation from goal in memory to the action, um, there you see that some neurons code the goal, uh, before the, uh, at the same time as the action. So they overlap, they have a bit of delay, but uh, during some period both things are, are coded by the same neuron.
1: But no, this, if they switch their, their representational um, connotation, do you see that also as reflecting the progression of the decision-making? Like, initially I have to make up my mind of what, what are my options, what's the relevant evidence, what's memory telling me, so maybe at that point in time, you want to dedicate more representational resource to what's, what's the goal I'm pursuing. Mm-hmm. But maybe at some point, when you have pruned down your options, and you to say, okay, to achieve the goal, this is now my action, mm-hmm. or these are the subset of actions I should consider. Maybe that, uh, in the progression of the decision process, I might want to shift my representational uh, resource. Mm-hmm. Is that also how you, how you see that?
0: Yeah, if I understood it correctly. Yeah, we found it like a sequence of states. Mm-hmm. So first you have something in memory, and because of the because you are integrating more and more information now, I should see which action to perform. So neurons are switching the the tuning or the, the the firing rate towards that feature because it's the one which is most relevant at that point. So it's more or less a sequentiality of states. Mm-hmm. Actually, there is are quite of there are some works done with. Uh, hidden Markov model, that what they saw is actually that, that we have a sequences of states through which the neural population in the different cortex and also in other cortical areas goes through sequences of states, mm-hmm. so that they are adapting to the new yeah, new events or new features coming in.
1: Mm-hmm. But does it reflect only that new information comes in, or does it also reflect the progression of the decision-making process?
0: Uh, both, yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. also the progression of the decision-making process. You can have changes in the in the in the states as the, the decision is being made, and also they're integrating also in mm-hmm. information. So both cases would be causing.
1: Right, but so would it be, so most of your neurons are uh, dorsal lateral frontal cortex, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Exactly. Do you think that this is a generic feature, also if you go to medial frontal cortex, or would you feel it's really a more specialized property? Of dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex.
0: Well, this I cannot, uh, I cannot uh, respond like with a clear, clear, clear answer because we didn't look at that. Mm-hmm. My guess would be that uh, you might find it also in, in other areas, not only the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. I think it's more like the how activity mm-hmm. evolves through the brain, so mm-hmm. you have some changes.
1: Right, but so. Then in these further experiments, you start to focus more also on how populations of neurons are actually then tuning themselves to the task, mm-hmm. right? And from that came also this idea that, that some populations are showing this progression in sort of a task-dependent way, and other populations do not show this progression, right? This is your, um, where, you, where you show this, um, you have, you have these groups of, of of neurons that you were measuring from, um, then you have the pre-go and post-go um, goal neurons, mm-hmm. right? but but some of those are actually switching their representational state, and others do not. Mm-hmm. Right, so mm-hmm. how, should I, how should I think about that? How should I interpret that? What does that mean? Also in, in, in the face of what we just discussed, that there is this sort of progression of the decision-making, the, the, the resource is reallocated in some sense, but should I look at this result as telling us that, okay, I have a bunch of of neurons in, in prefrontal cortex. In the end, they're multiplexing because across all these neurons you will find that they represent all possible aspects of the task and all possible combinations of these aspects. This is roughly what it means, right? Some of these will then again switch what they represent and others will not switch what they represent, right? So there's a fixed representational substrate and others will more dynamically allocate themselves to that. So uh, how should we interpret that? That there are just nerves that are stupid and dynamic and others are smarter and they're dynamic or uh, how do you you interpret that? How we we
0: interpret it is is, uh, we have two kind of, uh, well, two main uh, key features in the prefrontal cortex one are composed by neurons which are very stable in the family so they, they they are keeping track of what is going on also information which is important for for something for the decision or for attention or for whatever so they are very stable and robust and then we have a second group of, of neurons which are flexible because in the end you cannot just stick to to something and that's it you need to be flexible to be able to perform an action or to list or to get more information or whatever. So these two dynamics are very important in the brain because one is telling telling us, okay, this is the information we have. And the other is saying, okay, but now we need to move from that information. We need need to do something. So the other ones, the ones which are shaping the whole network in the prefrontal cortex to say, okay, now is the time to perform an action.
1: Right. But would it be fair then to say that there is one set of neurons, let's say 50% of the population gives you like a ground truth and said, this is what is out there in the world. This is what my needs are and my goals. And I'm not gonna, this is, this is the blackboard in which I'm gonna operate now. Mm-hmm. And they have another representational substrate or another set of neurons that then say, okay, now, if I want to come to a solution of this, these are the things I should be doing. Mm-hmm. So it sort of moves away from the ground truth and now starts to sort of prune, and okay, but this is the specific cue that matters. And this is the specific thing I should be doing and I should ignore the other stuff. Is this roughly how you would think about that?
0: Um, not exactly, because mm-hmm. we are talking always about two groups of neurons, but these are two extremes. We, we believe that in the prefrontal cortex we have a continuum group of neurons. Mm-hmm. So that means that it's not that all uh, we have only a group of neurons which are very stable and then one which is very flexible but that we have also something in the middle so that go from stability to flexibility. So when I talk about two groups, I'm always talking about the stream cases. Mm-hmm. But we believe that we have neurons doing things also in the middle range.
1: Okay, that is true, because indeed in your data you filter quite a bit, right? Yeah. In the end, we only looked at the exactly. non-switchers or the yeah, switchers. Exactly,
0: because these okay. were the streams of, mm-hmm.
1: the, of the model. All right, so, so, but it's interesting, right? Because it means in all right. cases, and so you represent all possible aspects of the task and all its combinations, but then also you you represent all possible transformations of that over time. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that what yes, you're saying?
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're
1: really expanding the whole search space, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Okay. So, so then, um, so now, so, okay. So, so,
0: for instance, we, with our model, we actually fitted the data that we were looking at. But mm-hmm. uh, remember that we are, were always looking at 1,000 neurons. Right. We are selecting a subpopulation of them because they are doing what we are looking at. Mm-hmm. But of course, we have many different
1: groups of neurons and many neurons doing all of this stuff. So. Right. Uh, exactly. No, this is. I understand. Okay. So it is, So we have a hyper um, high-dimensional representation of your task, and, mm-hmm. and this changes, right? So that you you would believe there's a bit of a problem. How, how do I now select among all these options? How, how do you see the selection and taking place? And this also, of course, brings us a little bit to the model that, that, that you built of, of this, right? So now, I have this high-dimensional space with all sort of combinations of uh, of features of the task. One is sort of a, a constant, and the other is dynamically now, if you want, trying the options and, and, so and weighing them, mm-hmm. right? So, how do you or see listening that?
0: Listening to the, yeah, listening right. to the outside instance.
1: So how do you see that process uh, play out? How uh, should I imagine that that this actually can lead to even a decision, that it can converge to 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 a decision on an action I should perform?
0: All these neurons, yeah, this whole process, oh, oh, I mean, this, I
1: just... this whole dynamical process that you measure from.
0: Well, they are. I mean, I I could see that as. A, I mean, do you imagine that the neurons which are stable in the firing rate are keeping track of the information which is, might be important at that point? And you see the other group, the flexible group, uh, getting more information from outside, but also from our, our internal motivation, attention, and everything. And you see this is a coupled, uh, connected areas and, and and neurons inside the frontal cortex, as I show in the in the presentation, um, just by by connecting them with some excitation and emission you might you would get this this selection at the end because with the flexibility of the neurons, but you get is that uh, they, they decide in a way which part or which neurons will be res- responding next, which in the end will lead to the appropriate action to perform.
1: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so, so you propose a model where you say, well, you can think about this as as a, as a, as a system of, of, of computing pools of neurons that are dedicated to certain aspects of the task, let's say the goal that I'm pursuing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then these neurons have the capability to maintain the state, like a memory, it's like it's a memory system, and they have the capability to, to rapidly switch, right? They have the capability yeah. because they're, they're bistable. Mm-hmm. Right, now, By virtue of how they're wired, they, they can maintain multiple states and they can switch from one to the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but now every pool is dedicated to one feature of, of the task, like a goal, mm-hmm. right? or a cue, or an action, I don't know what. Mm-hmm. And then you showed that you could then get this this switching behavior by by, by wiring these pools of neurons up in a, in a sort of a smart way, mm-hmm. right? That, that if I get a non-specific excitation across all these pools of neurons, mm-hmm. that I can now flip, that I can sort of go for QA or QB or response A or response B, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, correct. Okay, cool. So this and you demonstrated to us that this, this mm-hmm. can work. But you demonstrated that for in a very low-dimensional space because now we just looked at one cue, mm-hmm. right? But what we sh- looked at earlier, or as we discussed it earlier in your physiology, you see that actually you code all the features of the task and all their combinations, and it's changing over time, mm-hmm. right? So how do you see that model then scale? Because now I mean every pool of neurons in your model is one of these, right? One of these cues or one of these Q combinations, mm-hmm. right? So, how, how do you see that scaling being feasible for your model?
0: Okay, so each pool is not exactly only one feature of the task, mm-hmm. because well, which, uh, the, the the pools that I showed in the in the presentation are actually modules of a network, and each module is composed composed by eight uh, group of excitatory neurons and one group of inhibitory neurons. Mm-hmm. So, each of these groups is responding to one for instance if they are coding the goal so if it's a module dedicated to the goal they would be coding eight different goals so each pool would be responsible for being selected for a different goal and the same happens with the other models so inside each model we have already selectivity for eight different uh, future, uh, different variables of the same feature. so i think it's very realistic to scale it up because uh, it will be taking the same, mod- with the model that we presented today, we already have there many features covered, like if each model is actually uh, coding the eight different variables of the of a goal. So mm-hmm. it's not only red and blue, like in our task, they could also code green, yellow, till eight. So actually the model is already capable of, uh, okay. of explaining quite so a- So the
1: scaling would become problematic when I start to add goals then. So, you have the grouping around goals, that would be a, key, a, a, a critical feature, mm-hmm. So basically, uh, I, I, as long as, as this population is linked to that goal, mm-hmm. I can capture the whole set.
0: If uh, there are no more than eight goals, we mm-hmm. can explain the, the data. Okay. That so, would be a mm-hmm. way of saying, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. But the other thing that you can think of is that your model is a labelled line kind of model, right? Mm-hmm. So the the synapses I get must be uniquely linked to some feature, right? Otherwise the dynamics cannot work, mm-hmm. right? So that would also mean every neuron is dedicated to just, it's sort of permanently dedicated to some aspect of a task. Mm-hmm. But isn't it an important feature of, of, a, of a working memory system of prefrontal cortex that you can dynamically be allocated to any task? Right. So 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 how would that work? I have my, my pools of neurons and now I'm doing a discrimination task. But maybe the next hour I have to do a navigation task or I have to do an operant conditioning task or whatever, I have to look at other kinds of problems. Right. Mm-hmm. So so how can you have this flexible allocation of of the content if you want the semantics?
0: Well, I think this model could be pretty general because you just change or you learn with the with time the new task and then you change your synaptic productivity with the modules or from the input that you get, and then you would have four different kinds of behavior with the same model. Mm-hmm. The model. Okay. So I think if we yeah, monkeys were really well trained in this distance discrimination task, but if they would switch to a different task, I think this would be learned in the uh, synaptic connections of the models, mm-hmm. and then you would have the same dynamics that would be okay. the task. Mm-hmm. But, but actually, what we wanted to do with, I mean, the whole view that I presented at the end was more like a proof of concept to say, okay, we have this, heterogen- we need, uh, if we have this heterogeneous neurons in the brain, as we think we have, we can't really um, explain the data that we observe. So it's mm-hmm. more like a proof of concept to say we have a brain and we have had an area which is full of heterogeneity in mm-hmm. the in the of the neurons.
1: Right. So but now the scaling along along goals, if I have goals that, that are competing with each other, mm-hmm. right? How how would I account for that in this system? You have opposing goals. Okay, Ocean so, goals are the contradictory.
0: Okay, so there you would have a competition. So this is in the end is uh, each model is an attractor network. Mm-hmm. So you would have, within a model, you would have two pools which are uh, um, ex- uh, stimulated, and then they would compete, and in the end you will have one winning goal and one mm-hmm. that lead to the to the final execution okay. of an
1: action. Mm-hmm. So with, in this case, indeed, so, so it's like an attractor model? Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at firing rates of the model, Mm -hmm. right? And in some sense, you're interpreting uh, or try to predict performance from the firing rate, but in earlier work, um, a very influential paper that you which you were the first author, you actually made a point that firing rate is not that informative about performance, right? But Mm -hmm. it's much more the the variability of the responses that really matters if Mm -hmm. tasks get Mm -hmm. more complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you, did you step away from that from that view? Are you back now more into the, the rate-coding view of things? Or no, or
0: I'm really interested uh, still in the variability or which information we can extract from the variability. In this case, I didn't look, well, actually we did something with variability, but uh, we calculated it by looking at the bars and poses in mm. our data, because uh, in the models that we presented, we have, uh, we have the stable models, are the ones which are very stable then they don't have variability, or almost nothing, no variability in the rate. whereas the, the ones which are more flexible have much more variability. And we tested that in the data, looking at the bars and pauses, and we found that actually uh, we could, uh, yeah, this prediction was, was right. What we don't have is anything with the behavior there, because we were not, actually, I tried to look at that, but we didn't have any good in this study, the planning is that we don't have reaction time, so that's very limited. Because uh, whenever the targets uh, appear, the monkey can perform the, the action mm-hmm. because he already knows wh- what to choose. So we didn't have reaction time, so we could not correlate it with variability or with any other measure mm-hmm. of difficulty. So that's why in this uh, this study I didn't look at that because I didn't have the, the right. possibilities. But I think. Variability and, and we proved that also within model is quite is very informative. Mm-hmm. It's one of the key features of these uh, flexible models.
1: So, are you saying with it that are you moving away from the standard model of fusion models of decision making? Because yeah. the standard view would be: look, I just integrate uh, whatever information I get. Usually, it's perceptual evidence uh, until it hits threshold. Whoever hits threshold mm-hmm. first is the winner. So, how, how are you? sort of moving away from that standard view on, on the decision making process.
0: I think these standard models are very nice and they are very useful to actually to have some predictions about which behavior you might encounter, mm-hmm. but uh, I think they are not so good to, to, to really explain the dynamics of, the, of a network. So you there you have an intuition of what you would expect as an average activity. But with the diffusion model, you cannot know what would be the individual dynamics because they don't do predictions of that. So I think the models are okay, but they have their limitations. So we, we must know how to use them. So, because I'm more interested in the individual dynamics, so to understand how neurons um, respond individually. Uh, more, I'm more interested in
1: striking ground models because there you can really account and explain what we observe in the Yeah, equation. but still the, the, the proponents of the, rate, of the rate-coded diff diffusion models are there. It's also the, the memory potential, the fine rate of individual cells that okay. are predictive of performance, right, because I can see that the slope that reflects integration is, is correlated with, let's say, the reaction times I get, or with with the accuracy that I get, right? So, it would, the claim would be made. Yeah,
0: yeah, I know. I, but I think it's more of like the, uh, under my point of view, is more the average of the population. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can explain that with a single neuron. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some people that say that you can, and you see that in the individual neurons, but there are also some recent papers that show that, actually, the ramping activity is an artefact of averaging different step activity with, with many neurons. So I don't think you can explain all the individual dynamics mm. with that. I think you can have an intuition about the mean activity but not really what the mean.
1: But I could then still say well but maybe what matters is the population response and as long as I can predict performance from the population response, I'm happy. I don't care what these single cells do because they all averaging out, it's just noise. Yeah,
0: but then I would say then, why do we have so many neurons? With one neuron,
1: wouldn't be enough. <laughs> <laughs> I often feel like that, yes, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, I think uh, if we have so many neurons, and coding in, in so different, so many different ways because of something, that, and we
1: should be able to... Understand. No way, but then, then don't you start to set the problem because I could say, well, Maybe I have all this variability in neurons, so the average has some stability or follows some distribution, uh, and that average is then what really drives the behavior.
0: Right? Uh, but I, yeah, you could say that. But I think, for instance, in the paper that we have together, which was so influential, <laughs> we we prove that that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. So that the mean activity is not telling everything.
1: Well, that that that's much the much. other point, of course, right? That maybe the point is if you have a simple task you have a simple code and rates are great but if a task gets more complex yeah, yeah
0: that could be like awesome. discrimination mm-hmm.
1: if I, right then um, you have to switch to different to a different coding model
0: maybe but what is that simple what is a simple task because in a way everything is complex if i mean discrimination tasks yeah what what would well look if i
1: have a random motion uh, display with predominant motion in one direction. Yeah. I just integrate over this whole field, okay. I just need the one big integrator, and okay, it will go one direction or the other. I don't need to compare anything, I just integrate. Yeah. I just do integrate the motion, right? So yeah. that's a simple task. Oh,
0: that's it. Yeah.
1: If I need to compare two stimuli, right, or I have to compare two time intervals, I already sort of demand more from my memory. Mm-hmm. I have to keep something in memory, I have to compare things. Yeah. Right? So. This might be another argument, why...
0: Mm, Yeah, but still I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think we are much more optimal than that. So why would you have so many neurons doing the same Mm -hmm. if you could have just one doing that? Mm -hmm. I don't think... Because in the end it's energy that we should not...
1: uh, That's true. Well, redundancy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or you could also argue... Well, another perspective is, of course, because it's the simple task, but if it's a simple task, you have simple cues, one cue. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the world in which his brains evolved, everything is ambiguous. Predictability yeah. is an issue. The Markovian yeah. assumption doesn't hold, right? Yeah. The, f- the future might be somewhat different from the past. Mm-hmm. You have right. So uh, maybe if we have these highly controlled and reduced paradigms. It of course also leads to a very reduced perspective on the complexity of the system that we are yeah, dealing that's with. True, that's right? it, I agree. Yeah. So maybe just, and then you are in something already moving a bit in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But there's always a question, do you want to still park it inside the standard model, right? Or do you want to move away from this idea that that fine rates integration uh, explains everything?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I, actually would like to move to, I mean, it's not that I don't agree with these models, as I say, they can be useful for some things, but I think they have their limitations, mm-hmm. and it's better that we open to different options and that we really try to understand the, the individual dynamics. Right.
1: Yeah. No, that is great. So, in front of you, uh, of course, also, also then uh, a, a delayed full disclosure. Uh, You've been a member of, of Specs here, right? We've been working together for quite a while. Um, we mainly looked at, that, at models, right, of, of, of the brain. Uh, and then you, you went into neurophysiology of the of non-human primate and macaques with uh, Aldo Genoveseo. And and now you start to stand on your own legs at the Neuroscience Institute in Aligante, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to make, you've made this tour now, you're sort of a young researcher, you're, you're building your career. But given your experience, what what would be Encarni's law in, in, that we should follow to understand the brain? In law? Mm-hmm
0: that um, I mean that is fundamental to use a combined experimental and theoretical approach because I think with only experience we cannot understand the the, the brain because we have only observations and with observation it's okay but uh, yeah we, we don't know about the insights and with the theory we can really explain that but theory alone would be also not so good because then we don't have anything to prove that what we are saying is actually correct. Mm-hmm. So for me and in my future life, I would like to continue combining both because I think that both are fundamental uh, for us to advance in understanding mm-hmm. of the brain.
1: Okay, yeah, great. And then I will come down to Elegant in a few years from now to, to check the state of the art in your lab <laughs> and to see whether you managed to really Falsify or verify the key hypothesis. So, what's the key hypothesis that you would like to see tested in this time frame of four years?
0: One that I'm still really willing to 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 show since I ended my PhD actually, is that the um, the variability in the firing rate of the neurons are coding the uncertainty of the different sensory modalities and that this is read out by a second. State uh, process, which is actually computing the confidence based on this diverse uncertainty that is uh, coded in the falling rate, and they are by the rate the So this is the key thing where I would like to to continue and to build my. And I hope that in some years from now I will have an answer to that, and I can really prove that. <laughs> that
1: uh, what I mean, is very, very important. It's not only about the finding rate, and that uh, we should start looking at different things. Yeah. Fantastic. And Connie Marcos, thank you very much
0: for this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> the CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometrics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European Seventh Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.